Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Hello, and welcome to our new podcast, Detailed. My name is Sharice Lakeside, sometimes known as the CSI Kraken, and I will be your host. I am the Senior Spec Writer for RDH Building Science, and also now the host of this RCAT-sponsored AEC Industry Podcast. To save you a long, boring bio, you can go read about more about me on the show page. The basic premise of this podcast will be centered around talking to project team members about specific projects around the country. We're going to talk about design inspiration, materials used, project successes, challenges, and lessons learned, all with the different perspectives from different members of the project team. That said, and fair warning, I am not very good at coloring within the lines. So for our first podcast, we will not be talking about a specific project, and on occasion we will stray from that format when we have a guest who can offer a varied perspective. And today, that would be my first guest on our first podcast, my very good friend, Marty Houston. Marty has worked as an architect, a contractor, on some pretty notable projects, I might add, and as a building enclosure consultant. Marty developed a passion for creative problem solving while studying architecture at the University of Cincinnati, and that has driven him ever since. And he is driven. One thing that Marty and I have in common is that we both have worked in multiple disciplines, which I believe gives you a very different perspective on any project with which you are involved. To embarrass him for just a moment, Marty is also one of the smartest guys I have ever met. It is an honor today to welcome to Detailed, Mr. Marty Houston. So I thought to break the ice, since this is my first podcast in a long time, and your first time talking to me on a podcast, that we would play a little game. Things people say in our industry that drive us just... Bonkers. (laughs) 
Yeah, that, that's it. That's it. Bonkers. <laughs> we were coming up with some good ones, and I actually wrote a few of them down. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to give you a statement. And I would like you to just on the fly pick one specific example. On any, you don't have to name a project or anything where you heard this statement and it adversely affected the project. Okay, first statement. I have always done it this way. Oh, uh, that's one of my favorites. Actually, it's phrased a bunch of different ways. One is, I've been doing it this way for 30 years. And I swear to God, if I had a nickel for every time I heard it, I would not need to have a job. Um, people say this all the time. Great example of this. I was actually working on the Kibbe Dome uh, with Walsh Construction. And it's a it's a whole uh, renovation of a, a, it's actually a barrel vaulted stadium in Moscow, Idaho. And every time I would go there, it was 22 stories of scaffolding, and I would walk it three times, just making sure I could see exactly what was going on. And um, this one day I go up there, and there's a guy putting in a sealant joint, and he has a bottle of glass cleaner next to him. And that is like one of the most clear tells that somebody is using a, basically a surfactant that can affect the, the cure of the sealant. And, and what they want to do is they, wanna, they want the joint to look perfect, right? So they slick it with glass cleaner. And they make it look perfect. And I said to the guy, hey, what are you doing? And he said, uh, what do you mean? He actually wasn't that polite. Um, and I said, well, you know, I could see you got glass cleaner here. You're using it to slick down the joint. And he asked me, like, what my credentials were and if I would choose to leave. And I said, no, I'm not going to leave. And we kind of got into it about it. He ended up calling his boss. And I said, listen, if there's anywhere in the specifications or the drawings that we can find that there's a recommendation to use glass cleaner to slick down the joint, then we'll do it. Otherwise, you got to stop. And he says, great, let's go down to the trailer. So we go down to the trailer. I already knew the answer, right? It's not in the drawings. It's not in the specs. It's not in the manufacturer's installation instructions. And so he says, well, how about we call um, the supplier? And I knew where he got his sealant from. And it was a, a good buddy and awesome technical resource of mine, Randy McAdams, who picked up the phone and he said, hey, I got this book learned guy up here in Idaho and he won't let me use glass cleaner to slick the joint and he said uh, well the problem is it's a surfactant and he's absolutely right you should never use it it's in the Dow America's technical guide and he says you know you're kind of one of those book read guys like Marty aren't you and I was just sitting here waiting for this he said no actually I'm a journeyman caulker 30 years in the union in Portland so I've done this stuff I've been on job sites. I know exactly how we're supposed to do it. And I also know the things that will make things go wrong. And it was amazing to take the guy who had actually been doing it right for 30 years and have him tell the other person who'd been doing it wrong for 30 years the right way to do it. I hear that on almost every project. I've been doing it this way for 30 years. What does it do to the, the sealant when they do that? What it does aesthetically is it makes the joint so slick and clean it almost looks like glass. And, and I said to this guy, um, I said, listen, if you install the joint without the glass cleaner and it looks pretty good, that's fine because we're more interested in the performance of that joint than the aesthetics of that joint. We're 11 stories up on a scaffold. The architect is never going to see this joint from the ground. Nobody's ever going to see this joint from the ground. What really matters is that it works. I said, hey, listen, if we were doing a bank lobby where I don't care how well the sealant joints work, this would matter because aesthetics matter in that particular application. It doesn't matter as much here. What matters is performance. And, and what it does, Charisse, 
to the sealant joint itself is um, to an extent we don't know, but what it generally does is it's a it's a surfactant. It's going to be a problem in terms of or a potential problem in terms of letting the sealant cure because the sealant has specific chemistry that works in a specific way with moisture in the air. And if you put another chemical or chemicals into that, you don't really know what's going to happen with the cure. See, every time I talk to you, I learn something new in like the first <laughs> two minutes. Well, that's what it should be, right? One of the things we got to do way better is lessons learned. Like you and I should have shared that like three years ago, right? And, and we probably should have shared it with like every up and coming architect, every up and coming enclosure consultant. So they know like, oh yeah, here are the weird little things that you really need to know that are the lessons learned from the industry. That's one thing that I don't think we do particularly well. No, no, we're horrible. Do you want to know how often things that happen during construction make it back to me so I can improve my documents? Probably almost never. I've never heard about people using window cleaner on joints, and I'm not out on the construction site. Spec writers don't get that opportunity a whole lot. Um, and so I agree with you wholeheartedly. I would love there to be a break it down session at the end of every project with every change order or every RFI during construction. And what do we need to improve in our documents so we don't have that the next time? It's uh, as valuable uh, a tool for the specs as it is for the drawings, as it is for, you know, the how did the, the relationships go? And what's, what's really funny is this is actually another phrase that I hear out there quite a bit is, you know, you'll say something about a detail being non-constructible or, you know, needing to, to change it to make it more constructible. And the architect will look at you and say, well, we did this on our last job. And I said, no, you actually took that detail from your last job, but that's probably not how they built it on the job site. And the bummer is that um, that revision that happens during the construction phase never gets back to the person that's actually doing the details. And the person that's doing the details, again, they just look at like, hey, what did we do on the last job? Let's get something pretty close to that. And really what you want to know is not what did we draw on the last job, but what did we build on the last job? One of the things that makes me twitch is when somebody says, oh, we used this section on this job and it's close enough, so just go get that so I don't have to go through it. If you don't take like all of your addenda and things that happen during construction and go actually correct that job at the end of the job, you're just bringing whatever problems that job had forward to the new one. And it's usually somebody new even taking it, so they don't know that those problems happened. Okay, so here's your next one. That's never going to change. <laughs> I hear that all the time when I when I approach somebody in the industry. I do a lot of teaching. I work with 350 people in my office and in my previous offices, big numbers of people. And I'll say, this is this is how it's supposed to be done. That's never going to change. That's a really tough one because it actually suggests a certain amount of resignation or a lack of motivation. And certainly the the people that you want to surround yourself with are the ones that are passionate. Ones that are also kind of on the, give props to my friend Ben Ellis, but people who are on a quality role, they're already, they're always looking for, um, and I'll actually give props to Mike Stefan here too, ways to um, to change in a way that's really evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary, right? Because we, what we don't have to do is blow everything up. What we have to do is treat every single project as an opportunity to get just a little bit better, right? And to, to actually execute something so that you can say to somebody like, yeah, it is going to change. Check it out. We did it. I remember when I started in construction at Walsh in 2006, we didn't do full air seals on windows. We really weren't 
as concerned about air barriers as we are nowadays. And so in the course of 15, 16 years, we've gone from, you know, doing sealant at the back of the window coming up six inches just to make sure the water didn't get in to fully air sealing it. And it's it's a standard practice. You know, and people back then, when you started doing a full air seal, they're like, what are you doing that for? And now, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's, it's at least in our region, in our the type of work that we do, it's, um, it's expected. It's standard practice. And so things do change. I just think that um, when you try to be completely revolutionary and completely disrupt, as they say, uh, the industry, you're going to find out that as a legacy sector, construction is not going to change very quickly. But it does have to change. And slow change is fine. So, okay, so this one was one of yours in our conversation. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That is kind of the death knell for somebody who is on a quality roll. But when I think about, um, like, constant improvement, one of the things you do have to do, you know, we're talking about, like, getting everybody together at the end of a project and talk about, like, what worked well and what didn't work well. And the whole reason to do that is, is to figure out what you need to change. And those lessons learned, generally speaking, they're not going to be like earth-shattering things that change your entire process. What it's going to be is you're going to figure out like, okay, on our bentonite installation, we forgot to do the pre-cut of the piles before we actually did the job. And it became a real problem for us. And if you got enough people sitting around or some way to be able to distribute that information, they can basically say, oh, yeah, actually we can figure out how to do it better. And that's that's that whole thing of like the constant feedback loop in terms of quality is you learn uh, from either your mistakes or the things you could do better, the things that you didn't anticipate, the things you didn't see coming. And, and you can now anticipate them. You can see them coming. You can have it be part of your work plan. And it's not like you're blowing the whole thing up. You're just getting a little bit smarter every single time. Absolutely. Because I'm doing that constant. I, I, I tell staff all the time, our our master documents are living documents. They are never, ever, ever done. I even worked into our process for the specifications for a way for them to communicate something that should be changed in the masters within the process of just editing their project specs so they don't have to go make a list somewhere and try to remember to email me later, which never happens. They can do it right there in their markups. And then I can go vet that change and make the improvements on a continually continual every project basis. It's the end of construction piece that's been more challenging over over the years to get that feedback and make it make improvements to the documents. I kind of get it too because you know what's happening at the end of the uh, the end of the job is everybody's just pushing for the finish line and they're like, let's just get it over the finish line, then we can fall down on our faces and take a two week breather and then get on to the next one. And if you don't take that opportunity, that like that downtime there, that's golden, right? Because that's where you can actually make the next job easier, better, more efficient, more energy efficient, whatever it is you're trying to do. You're not going to do it by doing the same thing over and over again. You're going to do it by basically improving the way that you do your widget. Because that's a lot what a lot of us do. We do widgets, right? Or make sure we specify the right widget next time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I've heard for years on the design side, that the timelines are getting shorter and shorter from the owners and the budgets are getting tighter and tighter and construction costs are exploding. And we'll be like to an 80 or 90% set. And they're like, we have to get this out. We don't have enough time to finish this work. So this is one of my most hated statements. We'll deal with that during construction. 
From the design side, <laughs> that is the worst because design contracts are front loaded. So you're getting like 20, 25% of your, your fee over 12, 18, 24 months, however long construction is. So you're just getting a little bit a month by the time you're in construction. That's not a time to have 3,000 RFIs in one month. Yes, I worked on a project that had that. That's a really crazy approach because decisions that you make in construction are way, way, way more expensive than decisions that you make in the design phase, right? Because if it's, you know, about moving a line, right, which can be a big move in construction, it's just moving a line and drawing, right? Right. So, and, and this is the thing, it's, um, and I keep going back to quality because that's my gig, right? Um, there's clear studies that say the cost of quality is actually really low at the beginning of the design phase. And it's really high and really um, disruptive during the construction phase. To move a line during SDs, what's it going to cost? Not a whole lot, right? To move a wall during construction because something wasn't dealt with or we didn't have enough room for plumbing or whatever, that's really expensive. Um, because the reality is, because the contractual structure, the contractor is going to make you pay for it. And they will make you pay for it, and they deserve, you know, if there's changes, to be paid for it. But, um, but that kind of attitude, I think what, what people need to kind of think about is that decisions made during construction phase are much, much more expensive than design phase. So make as many decisions as you can, and basically set up the contractor for success by giving them as much information as you possibly can. It's, and, and here's the other thing, though, Sharice, like nobody finishes a set of drawings. No, and, and I know that. And it's not a it's not a knock on architects. It's just that you can't answer or anticipate all of the information that a contractor is going to need. You know, to an extent, contractors have to and subcontractors have to fill in some blanks, right? So there's certain things that just aren't ever going to get there. But the push should be make the decisions before you start shoveling dirt. It is really a different environment working on the building science side and the level that they go to in choosing their products and doing their details and not saying those words. We'll just deal with that during construction. But in my history, especially in the architecture side, I've heard that literally thousands of times. And, and I'm not talking about that little bit we know always has to be dealt with. There's no such thing as a perfect project. I'm talking about like 20% of the project. And, and CA ends up being this nightmare. Um, and you lose money and it's not efficient because I don't, the one I didn't put on my list is I don't have time because that's the other uh. big one. I don't, you, <laughs> we need to, we need to coordinate this and get this wrapped up. I don't have time. You sure as hell don't have the amount of time it's going to take during CA right. to fix the extra right. half, an, half an hour you need to take right now. So I'm curious to hear, um, just because we share this, how, how do you feel your work in different disciplines, in architecture, then in construction, then in buildings, building science, has affected how you approach any project? I think it's really important to be cognizant of what other people have to do, what their struggles are and what their challenges are, so that you can have a little bit of empathy for what it is they're trying to accomplish and how they're trying to accomplish it and the structure within which they're trying to accomplish it. Actually, let me give you a really simple example of this. Two friends and I started a design-build business, and we started it off with this really, we thought it was huge. It was a quarter-million-dollar addition and renovation up in northwest Portland, and and that started our business off where what I would do is I would spend winter months drawing the summer projects, which were the big ones, 
And in the summer, I would put my bags on and I would go do demo and framing and all that kind of stuff with my partners. Um, and at nights, I would draw the, the kitchens and the bathroom remodels that we were going to do during the winter. And um, invariably, we would get to a part of the framing, and it was usually on the roof, where my partner, he would look at me. And I could see exactly what he was thinking, which was like, what were you thinking was going to happen here, Marty? <laughs> and we'd, you know, we'd end up having to like figure out like what's going on with the framing and, you know, figure out what the problem was. And, you know, he'd clearly let me know, like, you didn't anticipate this. You didn't see it. And after a couple of years of drawing these things and being out there, most importantly, with my bags on, framing, doing demo, all that kind of stuff, I stopped making those dumb mistakes. And I stopped getting that look from my partner. And what was cool was I had internalized what I'd learned from construction and it was reflected in my design. So as I was doing the design work as an architect, I was thinking like, okay, how am I and my partners going to actually build this thing? And I knew I had to resolve those kind of issues then because I didn't want to leave it to construction. Like we were talking about, you know, because the last thing that I wanted was that look from James and Anne. You know, they'd look at me like, okay smart guy what did you think was going to happen here you know I, I never wanted to see that um and so i think that um what's cool is you know i framed houses uh the summer after i graduated I, I did do this design build thing you know you're constantly thinking about what does it take for the person to actually execute this and, and a lot of times I'll, I'll hold up my fist as i'm talking to clients and i'll say this is the module of building and you got to think about the person who's actually using their hands to put this stuff into place. And it might be something as simple as, well, can a hand fit in that space that you just drew? So I think that that whole thing of being on site, of, of having done construction, of uh, understanding that, you know, there's, there's plumbers and there's electricians and there's framers and there's all kinds of people that need to come in and do this work. And you have to think about like, have I created a succession of activities that actually make sense? As opposed to, drawing with the final resting state of the detail in mind that's two totally different ways of thinking about it one is how does it get to that point and the other is that's the point i want to get to i'm but i don't really care how we get there so i i think that's been the real plus for me is that i can understand sort of the interconnectedness of different roles and of different goals that are going on within the project gives me a bigger picture yeah i would definitely agree with that um, i did a short stint also in construction and for example, when I'm preparing front end documents, I know what the contractor does with those documents when they get to their office. Um, then I worked in MEP engineering and I spent the first 22 years of my career in an architecture firm complaining about MEP engineers. I, I had to stand up and say, somebody needs to smack me upside the head because then I went and worked for an MEP engineer and I saw how ridiculous the communication was coming from the architects. And and how little exposure MEP engineers get in general in contract documents and what is and is not supposed to be there. And and I had to step it back and like almost I, I talk about this regularly, stand up and apologize. I didn't know how you worked, I didn't know what your workflow looked like, I didn't know what information you actually get from the architect. So I developed a coordination checklist for our engineers at that firm. They had to take this checklist call up the architect and say, what are you doing with fireproofing? What are you doing with access panels? And go down this list of all these places that you always have conflicts with MEP. And we eliminated a good majority of those conflicts in our documents. But I think everybody 
in school should have to do some uh, little internships um, and get real exposure, at least get dangerous enough to ask a question. So I'm curious about this question. Quality being your gig, I'm curious what the biggest technical fails are that you see over and over and over again. I'll tell you one thing that actually, um, it comes up a lot in terms of a technical misunderstanding. And granted, you know, this is, <laughs> this is my answer. Um, windows. Windows are this incredibly important component of the enclosure uh, because they do more than just allow, you know, uh, natural light and ventilation. And, you know, they keep water out and they keep air out. and They do all these kind of amazing things, give us a connection to the exterior environment. And, and, and people will do things like, I want to have these windows. You're like, okay, we want to have those windows. And are they appropriate for the exposure of the project? And they're like, oh, yes, we went and got a, uh, a lab test. And it said that it's a, you know, CW50, whatever it is. And that's about what we need for the exposure of this project. And you say, okay, great. Well, show me the lab test. And the lab test is for a three by five say a regular casement, single casement. And and the the design that we actually have is a 10 by 10 window that has a casement and an awning in it and three pictures. And you have to say like, okay, the test report you looked at was for this little itty bitty single window. The window that you have designed is actually this large multi uh, mauled configuration, which is very, very different than what the test report is about. And then they say, well, why is it that you keep pushing me into these specific, specific manufacturers? And it's like, it's not me, it's you. And I, you know, it doesn't need to sound like I'm breaking up with them, but, um, <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's like, uh, if you designed small windows, if you design small, moderately sized, reasonably sized windows that do the job of, you know, providing fresh air and ventilation and a connection to the outdoors, you can use any manufacturer you want. But when you make them 10 by 10 and they're multiple mold, well, what you've done is put yourself into a much, much smaller box of uh, manufacturers who can actually do that and give you the performance you want. And it's a, um, it's so wild when you actually say that to somebody and an architect goes, oh, I totally know what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, that's a thing that, I mean, it happens on just about every project. And I do get that comment, like, why do you keep making me use specific manufacturers? And I say, it's not me, it's you. You're making, you're putting yourself into a smaller box where you have fewer choices by designing the way that you design. So on the outside of the building, I would say that if I were just to pick a top three, it would be openings. So windows and doors, yep. roofs, yep, and concrete. So what say you about concrete? Okay, there's two things about concrete that seem to come up all the time. Number one is that, you know, architects like uh, the look of exposed concrete, and I get it. And, and, you know, exposed concrete looks cool. But here's the thing. There's only two types of concrete, right? There's that which has cracked, and there's that which will. And so if you're using concrete on the exterior side of the building as your primary uh, water control or water shedding surface, you need to understand that when it cracks, water's going to go through it. And the smaller the crack potentially the the more leakage that you've got and that only comes up uh you know when you say to somebody hey exposed concrete is going to crack you're going to get water inside and they're like look we have exposed concrete on the bottom three feet of every single building we have and it and it comes to roost when you test a, a storefront over that concrete and the back side of your storefront is completely pressurized the concrete isn't and because you're spraying enough water on it you get water coming through the wall 
right? And and might not be a big deal. Granted, there's a lot more water going at the wall during that window test than that wall will probably ever see. Maybe when it's pressure washed, right? But as soon as the owner sees like, oh, it failed. And it's like, yeah, the concrete is cracked and water will go through it. And it's a hard decision, I think, for architects to make because you either take on the risk of saying, eh, a little bit of water every once in a while is not that big of a deal, or I'm going to have to put elastomeric coating or clad it or something like that. So that's one thing that comes up with concrete a lot. I'd say the other thing that comes up with concrete a lot is moisture. And and, and obviously we deal with moisture and flooring, and, and that's something that can be managed, right? But when it gets to roofing, time is not on our side. You know, if you end up with a concrete slab for your roof substrate and you want to put down a vapor barrier, the problem is all of that moisture that's inside of the concrete, it does not want to have a vapor barrier on top of it. It really does not, right? It's actually that vapor flow is going to keep pushing up on that roofing system. And so we all have this, um, we all have this idea that, you know, okay, we'll get that roof slab in and then we'll get the roof on. We can start drying in our building and you can't do that. This has actually come up on a, a number of projects that are actually CLT framed, but they need the slab uh, for structural reasons. And so you get your CLT up and everybody's like, yay, CLT, we did everything so fast. And then you put the concrete on and then you got to stop because there are relative humidity requirements for roofing assemblies that can't be met with 28 day old concrete, right? And, and this 28 day thing everybody thinks about is, is the number. Like at 28 days, we can put the roof on. It's like, no, at 28 days, you can verifiably test the structure, right. the structural aspects of the concrete, right? It should be at full strength. That doesn't mean anything with regards to moisture. So it ends up becoming, you know, one of these things that is left to construction, Sharice, where everybody's like, oh, wait a minute, we knew we were going to put a roof on, but we didn't know we had this particular issue with moisture in the concrete with us putting a whole bunch of, you know, vapor tight materials on top of. So those two things are the real frequent concrete issues. So I've, I've seemed to have noticed over the years that the push to put that vapor barrier on or to put that flooring on the concrete if you want to get inside has often come from the contractor wanting to do it right away and not necessarily from the design team. And how can we do better there? Because all kinds of problems happen if you put anything on top of that concrete too soon. The the thing to think about is that, um, you know, once you get into the construction phase, like the schedule runs through the contractor, right? They control it. Right. And so, and they own it. And they want to own it. And, you know, contractors see, you know, you ever look at one of their Gantt charts, you know, everything is connected to something else. There's a clear progression. And, and, and an amazing superintendent will actually construct that building in his or her mind, right, through time. And that's how they put together this schedule. With the flooring, you've got a little bit of um, kind of an ace in your back pocket. And that is like flooring can be done at the very end of the job right? It can be. Right. You can let it go and let it go and, and really let those slabs get down to the, the, the right conditions. You don't have that kind of luxury with roofing because roofing is what creates your critical path. Like if you can't get even a temporary roof on, you can't start dry out. Up in Seattle, you couldn't even start an electrical without having at least a temp roof on. So the schedule is driven by a bunch of different things that you're trying to get moving and with the roof, you gotta get it down. Otherwise, you can't start your dry out. You can't start your electrical. You can't start all kinds of different things that are happening inside on your schedule. 
it is the contractor that's pushing the schedule on that. And that's because uh, he or she recognizes that from a from a critical path standpoint, getting uh, stopping the water from getting in the building is the first thing that has to happen before you can even start drying anything out. So it's it, it's an understandable push to get that roof on. I think the the key thing is like if you're gonna have a problem like that in the course of construction, um, you can think about that before you actually you know put shovel to dirt and come up with a plan. There's there's systems out there that can deal with that amount of vapor drive and and basically have ways to mitigate. You know, I think about like these vented base sheets. That's one option, you know, putting actual uh, one-way and two-way vents into roof systems to allow that vapor pressure to be expelled out of the system so it doesn't become a big load. There are solutions out there. The thing that you don't want to be doing is standing there the day that you're supposed to start roofing and understand you have this problem. What you want to be doing is designing your, your specification and your roofing system so that you're taking this into account. In anticipation of having this problem anticipation there you go <laughs> the whole thing i think sharice is um the people that are reactive get into trouble and and the people that are proactive actually you know see the signs coming and they can at least you know bring it to the table and say hey we got a problem i can see it coming i don't have the answer but you know now that i've got my my mechanical engineer my structural engineer my roofer and all these people let's sit down and go okay in three weeks we got to do this or I've got a problem that I can see happening out here. What solutions do you guys have? As opposed to everybody shows up and there's 16 installers and they go, hey, the deck's too wet. What do we do now? That's embarrassing. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in being proactive. So that kind of leads a little bit into my next question. I'm skipping around a little bit. Um, what do you think that design firms could do better from the get-go to make everything go more smoothly during construction? What are your kind of top couple of things that if the design team would have done this, we wouldn't be dealing with this right now? This whole idea of lessons learned. Walsh did a really good job of it. We actually had a, a company retreat that we do every year and people would have to get up and talk about lessons learned. And it was not the kind of invitation that anybody particularly enjoyed getting, right? Because they're like, okay, so you want me to stand up there and tell everybody how I completely screwed this thing right. up, how I cost the company about $125,000 and the simple, simple thing I could have done right so that I wouldn't have to do that. And, and um, it's, you know, it's tough for people to do that. But here's the thing, like if you make a $125,000 mistake once, that's, that's a bummer. But if you do it more than once, like that's just silly, right? And so it was pretty cool that, that people um, would get up and they'd say like, this is what I did. This is how we screwed it up. This is how we could have avoided it. Oh, and here's what we should put into our process so that we don't do it again. And I think if um, design teams were doing that really consistently, and I don't think it's just design teams. Like, it would be amazing if, you know, as part of lead or owner requirements or something like that, um, you know, the owner required you to sit down as a team and just go through the whole thing, like, you know, within three weeks of completing the job, you know, a month of completing the job, and just say, like, what are all the things that we could have done better? So that, you know, the contractor is actually getting the lessons learned, the, the architect's getting the lessons learned the owners getting the lessons learned because, you know, he or she probably made certain decisions that could have been made better. And, and we all get that, you know, if you can actually share that with everybody and you got to figure 
um, you know, it's not just like the project architect. You'd want the project architect and, and the person that did CA and the person that was the project manager. You want them all to be a part of that. Um, and so sharing lessons learned should not be a punishment. And people shouldn't look at it that way. It's, a, it's an opportunity to improve. The other thing I'd say for design teams is um, there's a lot of resources out there that would help to kind of tie up some loose ends. And I think the, uh, the thing that we all tend to do is, is silo a little bit and, and forget that, like, I could just reach across the aisle to so-and-so and actually talk to them about this particular thing because actually she knows more than I do. And let me get information from that person, right? And it may be, you know, there's a, a product rep. It may be that there's a consultant. The thing that would be really amazing is if design teams, when they met subcontractors on site, Charisse goes up, let's say you're an architect, and you go up and you're like talking there with the waterproofing person. And you say, hey, my name's Charisse. Here's my card. You know, can I call you sometime? And you actually start to make relationships with subcontractors because subcontractors are the ones that can answer a ton of questions for you. I've got this friend of mine, colleague, Aaron Bronner, and, and I'll reach out to him every once in a while and say, hey, Aaron, I want to have like the simplest detail, contractor friendly, that makes sense for gutters and asphalt shingles. And you're sitting there going, seriously? You're solving the problem of gutters and asphalt shingles. And it's like, yeah, because I get 16 different details where the gutter guy and the roofing person have to be there at the exact same time. And that's not how contracting works, right? So if you've got a subcontractor, you can call up and go, hey, Aaron or Judy or Sharice or whoever, like I've got this particular detail and I would love to get your input like now as opposed to during the shop drawing process. That would be another amazing thing to do. I think that there's too much of like uh, contracting is one side and design is the other. And the reality is the more that we get that peanut butter and chocolate together, the more successful we're going to be. The more we kind of see it as as uh, as complementary disciplines as opposed to blacks and whites, the better it's going to be. So, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. So I'm about to go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> Cause, cause you just, you just triggered. No, I know I've, I've been behaving for so long. It almost hurts. Um, so I taught a class and um, it was a, a kind of a specs 101 class to, it was approximately 50 to 75 concrete subcontractors. And me in my Ralph Lauren dress and heels outside in January, freezing my butt off. Cause nobody told me I was speaking outside and I stand up there and they're already looking at me like, what does this broad think she's going to tell us? And um, and I have worked in construction in the past. It's been a long time, but I know enough. So I stood up there and I said, I want to know how many of you read your specs? Ooh. Two hands yep. went up. But I asked one of the gentlemen, I said, why do you read your specs? Because nobody else here raised their hands. And so he explained to me as a younger professional he got really burned. He didn't go look at the specs. He made some really expensive mistake out on the job. And his boss came to him and sat him down and said, you're not going to get fired this time, but I'm going to show you exactly what you, and he had a boss who understood specs and showed him exactly what he needed to do and what he needed to look at. Um, but there were some things that came up during that meeting that we all know, but we don't really think about you. You know, you talk about get a relationship with the subs, which I love to talk to the subs and I love to talk to the contractors. Obviously, our contract model, the typical contract model during a project does not allow me, if, if I'm working in a, on the architecture side, 
or as is the prime to talk to the subs about the project. You got to go through the contractor in any kind of formal way. You can certainly build relationships there that then you can call them next week about a different job and say, Hey, would you help me out with this detail or take a look at this or, or whatever. But I personally, and this is just my personal opinion, so I don't, I don't know. I'm going to get struck by lightning. Don't feel like our traditional contract model is conducive to a collaborative relationship between the architect and the contractor. It is not set up to be a collaborative uh, endeavor. I mean, the d- traditional design bid build, um, I'm not sure who it benefits, honestly, because what happens is, you know, in traditional design bid build, you know, everybody tries to come in and hard bid the thing. And if you're a good contractor, what you have is the list of and a price for what is on the drawings and what's in the specs. And then you have a second list, which is the amount of work that it will take to actually get the job done. Right. And we call that change order number one. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, so you go in and, and, and you win the job at $12 million. And, you know, at $15 million, the final cost of the project, I think what ends up happening is um, the contractor doesn't look good because they look like they're greedy. The architect doesn't look good because the architect didn't provide enough information. And so there was $3 million worth of change orders. And the owner's looking at both of them and going like, what happened, guys? Like, you know, we were supposed to build a $12 million project. I think the the other way where you go like CMGC or like a truly integrated project team, and, and my former employer was really good at this. Um, you know, they'd say like, here's a, it's a $12 million project, right? And you're at the end of SDs and it's a napkin sketch. And the team works together so that when they get to their DD budget set, they're they're at twelve million dollars. Or if they're high, they know why. And you put strategies in place to try and get back to the original budget. And you and you keep working collaboratively through the iterative design process so that you stay within budget. And and everybody has skin in the game, you know, because basically you're building a twelve million dollar building, right? And you're gonna figure out as a team how you get there. As opposed to, you know, the, the design bid build, the hard bid, um, it really just, it sets everybody up into, <laughs> I think, adversarial camps. Whereas if everybody has a, um, a goal, uh, a project goal, a budget goal, a performance goal that everybody is knowing and they're working towards, and it's actually part of the entire design process is to get there. That seems awesome. And it might sound like, you know, I've been living in um, fairy tale land. But I will say the the CMGC process that I experienced working with Walsh, actually, it worked that way, right? And everybody did have skin in the game in terms of contributing to, like, how do we keep the project in budget and how do we keep the, the project goals still there within that budget as well? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think hard bid is a, is, a, is a benefit to anybody. It is still the most commonly used process, obviously. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the concept of integrated project delivery. The problem is, is a lot of owners don't want to buy into that unless it's really large projects because you've got all these people on board from day one or early in the process. So obviously somebody's got to be paying those people. So, it, you know, in some respects, it can't, so it, it doesn't, at least at our certain point of evolvement, doesn't make sense for anything that isn't a really large project. And there's so many things in those contracts that prevent the team from really working. I had some of those those subs that day, those concrete subs tell me 
that they had contractors basically threatening to kick them off a job and use somebody else if they said anything about something that was being done wrong. And, and I'm not saying that's your average job, but there were some horror stories from some of those subs. And, and they can't just skip right over the contractor and go to the owner or go to the architect if they ever want to work in that town again. But those conversations are valuable. You got to listen to subcontractors because the subcontractors are the, you know, when I talk about the hand being the the, the uh, module for building, you know, the men and women that are actually putting the work into place, they're the ones that we really need to talk to. Yeah, we want to talk to their bosses because they're the ones that are going to be able to tell us, you know, budget and schedule. But if we truly want to learn the intricacies and, and the technicalities of the work that we're actually designing and asking people to install, we got to go to the people that are doing it. Final question. If you were king of the world and had complete control over a project from beginning to end, every single thing, every single person, what are the top three fundamental changes or corrections you would make to how a project is administered from how we typically do it now? Change the contractual structure from one that's about competition to one that's about collaboration where basically everybody is incentivized to reach a certain goal and, and we share in the incentives, right? Um, so it really means having more of a, like an integrated project delivery type of approach where, you know, we set goals as a team, we reach goals as a team, uh, we celebrate our goals and we're, um, you know, rewarded for our goals as a team, right? Um, set it up so that it's about uh, success and not competition. I, I think that would be number one. I'd say number two is is um, take a completely proactive approach to the project. Um, the last thing you know that you want to do is bring a superintendent in uh, one week before they put the trailer on the job, right? And the superintendent's trying to figure out exactly what he or she's going to do. That superintendent should have spent several months figuring this job out uh, before they get going. And I think good contractors do that, but everybody should be thinking about a proactive approach to the project, like. You know, how do we get in front of um, uh, issues that we know are going to come up, come up in construction? And, and, and the reality is the GC can probably tell you the things that are going to come up just based on what they can see in the drawings. So I think being proactive about it, and that's, that's kind of going back to your question of, you know, like, hey, let's leave this to construction phase. No, let's not leave it to construction phase. Let's like do the hard work and answer the hard questions and make difficult decisions, but let's do it way in advance so that we're, we're making a lot less of those decisions, you know, when it's crunch time in construction. Number three, this is uh, going back to item number one, but um, the lowest number is not always the lowest number. And understand that what you think is the most cost-effective way to do things is not always the most cost-effective way to do things. It might look like on your estimate that it is the most cost-effective way to do things, but what you really have to do is go in and look at, okay, let's say, for instance, you think like, I'm going to use a mechanically attached WRB because it's the most cost-effective way to do it. And the reality is that the cost of that mechanically attached WRB is really related to what happens with the weather, right? The cool thing about a mechanically attached WRB is, generally speaking, you don't care if your substrate's wet. But if the wind starts blowing, now you have to put on all of your furring or cladding attachment or whatever to keep the WRB on. Now, you knew you had to do it at some point, right? But the real cost of the WRB is actually 
keeping the WRB on the wall. And part of this is in acknowledging that the most cost-effective solution is not necessarily the most cost-effective solution is that same thing that we've been talking about, which is the people that put on the WRB should be able to go back to the estimator and say, oh, hey, by the way, this is all the extra work that we have to do for this mechanically attached WRB so that we keep it on the wall. Whereas if we used a self-tiered or we used a liquid applied, we wouldn't have to do all of these different things. So I think um, that also goes into the whole thing of like questioning assumptions. Just because that was the number that seemed to get us there on the last project, is it really the true cost of actually doing the work? And and if you really start to acknowledge the true cost of doing the work, um, you'll know that the most cost effective or the, and you say cost effective because you never want to say cheap to a client. Inexpensive, not cheap. (laughs) And yeah, cost effective sounds good because there's a value in there, right? That that's not necessarily always the best way to do things, um, and it's not necessarily always reflective of what it really took to put the work into place. Marty, like I'm like way over time. I don't know really what my time was supposed to be, but I want to thank you. I could talk to you. We could go all day long into different rabbit holes, um, but I want to thank I want to thank you for coming today and being my first inaugural podcast. I couldn't have picked a better guest. I look forward to harassing you with questions from. Going forward, I'll bug you whenever I feel like it. Fair enough. Thanks for the privilege of uh, being your first guest. Yeah, no problem. You're, you're, You're a star now. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.